In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. According to a recent poll, if I were to ask you how you were doing, there's a 54% chance you would say tired. Tiredness is so commonplace that just to make things interesting, we compare our levels of fatigue. Betsy Byrne wrote this in The New Yorker. There's an underlying contest over who is more tired and who has truly earned his or her tiredness. According to the tired married people with kids, for instance, there's no contest. They are the royalty of the tired kingdom. <laughs> Smug with exhaustion. Quick reminder, Maddie and I just had a baby two months ago. <laughs> just gonna leave that there. This is just a warning to not under any circumstances ask us how we're doing. <laughs> Chances are the question isn't whether or not you're tired, but what you are tired of. Are you like Al Green, tired of being alone? Or maybe you're like the Kinks, you're tired of waiting. Or maybe like Tom Petty, the king of fatigue, you're tired of screwing up, tired of going down, tired of myself, tired of this town. Oh my, my, I'm just kidding, we're not going to sing the whole song. Rest in peace, Tom. You tired of your body not cooperating with you? Are you tired of grieving? Of not knowing what's next? You tired of preserving your honor? Well, this morning's reading from Isaiah addresses our never-ending languor. Isaiah acknowledges the reality that life is universally grueling. It says, even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. In other words, no one has a monopoly on fatigue. The reasons may vary, but for both old and young, there is plenty of weariness to go around. Now, at first, this may sound depressing, but it's comforting to know that we're all on equal footing. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, a few hours of mountain climbing turn a rascal and a saint into two pretty similar creatures. Fatigue is the shortest way to equality. Now, Nietzsche and I don't always see eye to eye, but we agree here. I play basketball with a group of men twice a week. And the range of physical prowess is vast. It's from former college athletes to, well, this. <laughs> it's a wide range, from alley-oops to air balls. But at the end of each game, we are all one big puddle on the floor, high-fiving, congratulating each other for escaping injury, at least for one more day. Maybe your fatigue is not the physical variety, but social or mental fatigue. Uh, this year, many, many of us will suffer from political fatigue. Isaiah wrote this passage while the Israelites were being held in exile by the Babylonians. And at that time, the Israelites were in complete despair, the depths of spiritual fatigue. They thought God was totally checked out. 
and uncaring. And what does Isaiah tell them? Lift up your eyes. Who created the starry host and calls each by name? The Lord is the creator of the ends of the earth. In other words, let's get a little perspective here. If you need to get recharged, look no further than the source of all power, who, when there was nothing, said, let there be. Let there be light and mountains. Let there be rivers and living things. God didn't have to do that. All of life, all of this is unnecessary when you think about it. When you get back to creation, you realize who you are and who God is, and then suddenly your life is not a problem to be solved, but a gift to receive. If you can see that, you might just be able to run and not grow weary. As Jack Kerouac wrote in his personal journal, if a dead man were allowed to return to the earth for one day, for one day, would this resurrected man waste any time contemplating the good and evil in the world? Or would he just feast the eyes of his soul in a hungry viewing of life on earth, the thing itself, little children, men, women, towns, cities, seasons, and sees. Lift up your eyes, and there's more than enough to keep you going. There's a problem, though. The Israelites have tunnel vision. When Isaiah asks, do you not know, have you not heard? The Israelites probably said, yes, actually, we do know and we have heard. We talk about it all the time. We just don't believe. We're stuck. You can't tell someone in a tunnel to look on the bright side. A friend recently asked me and Maddie, now that Davy is nine weeks old, if we feel like we've reached the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> we both looked at each other and we said, ah, uh, it still feels like we're in the tunnel. In fact, I think we've taken up residency in the tunnel. You know, the tunnel's not actually that bad once you move in your furniture and you get some art on the walls. We're going to live in the tunnel. Where are you experiencing tunnel vision? Where it feels like things are never really going to ever change. I mean, here we are in the month of February. This is the doldrums of the calendar year. When the Romans first set the calendar in 8th century BC, this was long before seasonal affective disorder was a thing, January and February, they weren't even included. <laughs> They were just a nameless, meaningless void. That's where we are right now. That's the situation that we're dealing with. This is the season of stuckness. So where's their hope? When you feel stuck. Isaiah says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait for the Lord. In other words, do nothing. Now, if you are tired of feeling stuck, 
and you want to just snap out of your malaise, doing nothing is the least appealing option. But doing nothing is likely the best thing that you could do. As Corey Tenboom once wrote, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. In that sense, the psalmist's call to be still and know that the Lord is God is not a commandment, but permission to do nothing or at the very most pray. It's an invitation for not just a higher power, but the source of all power to change and guide you in the place where you are trapped rather than doing something. There's a good chance that something is already being done without you knowing. Better yet, something was already done a long time ago when God entered the tunnel himself descending from on high to the depths of our despair. With Jesus, you don't have to lift up your eyes. In Jesus, God meets you at eye level. George Eliot, the English novelist, wrote a wonderful book called Janet's Repentance about a woman named Janet Dempster who slowly finds herself trapped in an abusive marriage to a severe alcoholic. And eventually, to numb herself from the pain, Janet starts sipping the drinks that he leaves around. And she becomes an alcoholic, too. And one night, in a fit of rage, her husband locks her out of the house. It's wintertime, and it's dark. And George Eliot says this, she was tired. She was sick of that barren exhortation. Do right and keep a clear conscience and God will reward you and your troubles will be easier to bear. She wanted strength to do right. She wanted something to rely on besides her own resolutions. For was not the path behind her all strewn with broken resolutions? How could she trust in the new ones? Janet then thinks of a man named Mr. Tryon, who is the new minister in town, who is not dignified and has a reputation for, quote, being very fond of great sinners. Sounds like my kind of guy. And Janet herself would poke fun at his earnestness, but at that moment, she finds herself going to his door. And he takes her inside, and he takes her seriously. He says, I know it is hard to bear. I would not speak lightly of your sorrows. And he listens to her for a long time. And when she's done, he says, do not believe that God has left you to yourself. How can you tell? but that the hardest trials you have known have been only the road by which he was leading you to complete the sense of your own sin and helplessness, without which you would never have renounced all other hopes and trust in his love alone 
he then says, it is you Christ invites to come to him and find rest. He does not command you to walk alone without stumbling. You have only to rest on him as a child rests on its mother's arms, and you will be upborne by his divine strength. That is a picture of faith. Faith is not strength or piety. It's a child resting on its mother's arms. You see, fatigue is not without hope because it's a precondition for renewal. Weariness is a precondition for rest just as death is a precondition for resurrection. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Note that Jesus does not promise a life without burdens. We all have a yoke to carry. It's just that his yoke is so much lighter than yours. You know why? Because he's God. It's not a trick question. He can carry things that you can't carry. He can carry your regret. All the things you've said that you wish you could take back. He can carry your diagnosis. He can carry your worry and your sin. In fact, he already did. He carried them up a hill called Calvary so that they would be nailed to the cross and taken to the grave forever. May they rest in peace. And soon we will come to the altar to receive the body and blood of Jesus, what we call the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. You may feel faint and weary. When I ask you how you're doing, you may say that you're tired. And you may have exhausted all other options. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. It is a love that bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things things. It is a love that never ends. Amen.